Young Academy Groningen presents Humans of Rug. This is Arjen Dijkstra. I'm head of the University Museum. And this is Harry Oosterhuis. I'm the Beadle from the Academy Building. Humans of the University of Groningen. Your hosts, Lisa Herzog. Hello. And Julia Costa Lopez. Hi, everyone. From the Young Academy. Humans, Humans of Rug. Find the podcast at humansofrug.nl or in all the common podcast players. So Arjen, what is your job and how does it relate to the past of the Rug? Well, uh, as, as head or director of the University Museum, I'm uh, responsible for uh, preserving uh, a lot of the artifacts connected uh, to our past and also of showcasing them to, to the public of telling stories about them and also of uh, getting people interested and working with these vast collections because we have a lot of stuff from the past and uh, we try to keep it alive, not just to have it sitting on, on a shelf somewhere, but to find people who, are, uh, who want to work with it. And what about you, Harry? I'm uh, working as a beadle. That means every promotion or inaugurations opening closing academic year that's my job to do as a beadle in this podcast series we explore different facets of the university through the daily lives of the people who work study and interact with it and today we focus on the rug and its history the rug is the second oldest university in the netherlands and was founded in 1614 this long history however is not only something of the past but also something that nowadays needs to be preserved as we think about future generations. Our two guests today are some of the humans of the rug that interact with the history and the future of the university on a daily basis. So can you give an example of how concretely the traditions of the rug are preserved? The thing I do as a beetle, I, I uh, walk in, in the, in the aula from the academy building and I stop the defense from the candidates. And I also take care of that everything is arranged good, that the professors take care of the protocol and, and so on. So, so when, when you walk in at the end of a defense, you have this short line, you say, right? Yes, yes. I shout loudly, Hora finita! So are, are people sometimes surprised when you interrupt the defense, walk in and yell this? Yeah. They're very surprised, but they don't know mm-hmm. anything about it. And then I come in and shout, and they are very surprised. They have no words. It's For them, it's extraordinary. It's very strange. The, f- the first time you had to shout this, were you a bit, a bit shy, a bit self-conscious of having to interrupt the whole defense and just yes, yell it? Yes, I had. <laughs> Uh, especially uh, people like Ben Vieringa, mm-hmm. very famous. And then I come in and shout Hora Finita, I st- must stop him. <laughs> and that's, it feels a little bit strange. It feels a bit strange. Right? I mean, surely you think, why do I need to interrupt this? <laughs> They're discussing. Yeah, but, I, I had to stop it. But wh- why do you think then we still do these things? I think it's very important that we do this. Uh, it's, it's an old, uh, old tradition and it should be kept like mm-hmm. this because it gives very more value to the students mm-hmm. if they complete their studies mm-hmm. 
And sometimes I, I know it because people 60, 70 years old, they come in the building and they know, they know clearly the words Hora Finita. <laughs> they did not forget it. They didn't. Do you talk sometimes to these people when they come to the academy building and they tell you, ah, yes, someone came and yelled Hora Finita? Yeah, of course. I like it. That must be quite nice. Yeah. <laughs> to turn to you, Arjen, the University Museum has lots of material objects from the Röch's past. Can you give us an example of what these things tell us about the humans of the Röch in the past? So you asked me to, to bring something along, which I did, obviously. But before I'm going to talk about that, I, I wanted to add to something uh, Harry said. Yeah. Because, Harry, uh, you work with the scepter, uh, the, the stuff, the uh, pedal stuff. On a daily basis, um, we we as a university only have three uh, of these scepters. And one of the three, the oldest, is kept at uh, the university museum. And we keep it most of the time in a storage facility where we handle, handle it with great care. But if there's a festivity like the opening of the ac academic year, Harry might actually walk around with something we normally only touch wearing gloves and we're very uh, very careful about Harry is careful about it too I think you were the first actually to show me these all three different uh, scepters so that was a moment when they were all three in use and that was the first time I was properly introduced as in that I could handle them for the first time how old are they uh, the oldest is from 1615 so only one year after the university was uh, opened the this scepter was made The other one is from the early 19th century and the last one is only 20 years old. But uh, from a distance, it's hard to tell them apart. And the oldest and newest, you, you almost can't tell apart. That is fascinating. Harry, what does it feel to walk around with something so delicate and so old, but also so symbolic and important? Yeah, I, I saw a lot of uh, pictures from people in the past. They walked with the same as mm -hmm. I do. Mm -hmm. And all these people are, are gone. And now I'm walking with it. It's 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 a different feeling then. So yeah. uh, a fun uh, fun bit of information, perhaps. But on my PhD, I did a PhD in the history of mathematics, history of universities. I have a picture. I didn't take my PhD at Groningen University at another, but I have a picture of people walking in uh, 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 people walking, and one of them is the beadle of Groningen University, and he is carrying the scepter Harry still uses at these great festivities, right? So I, I use it as a picture from the 17th century and only later I <laughs> became responsible for uh, caring for it and uh, handing it over to the Beatles whenever it's necessary. So, so these objects really connect the generations of the work. Yeah, the, they're very old but still in use. So uh, that's, that's quite special, I think. That is really, really interesting. And I mean, of course, as part of your job as, as, as the director of the museum, there's objects like this that, of course, are very important and very symbolic for the whole university. But if we think about the university every day, we produce so much material, so many artifacts. So how do you even pick which ones are important enough to keep and which ones are just not so not so relevant? How is that decision made? This, that, that's an impossible decision, right? So, mm -hmm. so we've got uh, protocols in, on, which, uh, on, on the lines of which we make these decisions. 
even though uh, today I'm not involved in what the university throws away and what we keep. Uh, let me give you one of the best examples I can give, probably. Uh, five years ago, Ben Veringa won the Nobel Prize. He is only the second active professor at this university to win a Nobel Prize, only the 10th uh, Dutch person to do so. So from the moment he won it, everything he had uh, got special value. All of a sudden, it was all interesting from a historical perspective. Uh, a few weeks later, because I was involved in the festivities around it, I entered his office for the first time, or I think for the first time after he won it. And I looked around and there was all these papers and these he, he'd won many prizes, obviously, already. And I found it fascinating. It was really this messy room of a scientist as you picture them. Uh, about a year and a half later, I returned on a completely different matter. So I entered his office and I was like, half of it was gone. And I was like, what happened here? And they told me, well, the mayor came to visit him and we cleaned out the room. <laughs> and, and I was like, no, no. So so then we started talking and uh, we said, like, uh, can we have... We, and Ben actually generously already donated stuff from his own past. So we've got his uh, exams he made as a school boy. We've got his wooden shoes from when he was younger, stuff like that. It's all import important because he had, has won this one important prize. But that's like at the very end of the spectrum, something we all understand from a different point of view. Um, during the COVID pandemic, we all got a bar of chocolate from uh, the university board at a certain point. Now, I, I'm not in fa favor of the museum for all kinds of reasons uh, to keep a bar of chocolate in <laughs> be because my staff, uh, my staff, our staff might start fighting over it. No, because it might turn bad and that, that gives all sorts of problems. But we did keep the wrapper. Uh, because it's it, it's something uh, well we a story we may want to talk about in uh, in hundred years time or perhaps already in five years. That that is really interesting. So sometimes there's there's people at the university that donate things for keeping. Sometimes the university decides it itself, and sometimes you take the initiative from the museum always already in in terms of thinking about what types of stories you may want to tell in the future. Yeah. So, so, so if if we again uh, look at the Harry's job uh, uh, inside the academy building, there's all kinds of fascinating stuff that's been kept there. So a few weeks ago, uh, the the Beatles called us, "Can you have a look at this cupboard? We the, there are all kinds of glasses in it." So we found a few hundred glasses from the middle of the 20th, or found they were there and had been there for a long time, but from the middle of the 20th century all with, uh, with the shield of the university engraved in it. Now, we keep two of these glasses in our collections and the other 48 or 98, I'm not sure uh, how many it were precisely, we're thinking about selling and hoping to raise a little bit of money, which we can use as a museum again, uh, to restore another object. So uh, at a certain point in time, we think, well, it's, it's good enough to keep two of these objects. Um, and if we're generous, because this is all a bit fluid and not written down, we might actually give one to Harry, uh, to Harry, because uh, we, we uh, he he likes it or something like that. That also happens. So you proud something? Can you 
tell us what yeah. it is and describe it for us and what it means? For I, the I'm, I'm going to begin with uh, what's in the box. So I, I have a small uh, cardboard box here. And when I open it, uh, there's a, a set of gloves in it. Just uh, your everyday uh, uh, latex. Well, it's not latex, but these uh, plasticky gloves, which I'm going to wear because I'm going to handle this like a person in the hospital, I, I reckon. <laughs> I'm making it very uh, suspenseful, am I not? So inside the box, there's this... Uh, it's quite heavy. Um, there's this... What can be so heavy? Uh, there's this bubbly plastic with uh, tape on it, and you can hear me tearing off the tape, obviously. And now I'm rolling out uh, the bubbly plastic... There's a second layer of protection inside of it. Lots of plastic. Well, well no, this is paper. Actually. This is paper? Okay. Yeah. So, but it's making all, us curious. All to keep it safe. So, so what can it be, right? Um, and here I have it, a, a rock. <laughs> uh, and it's a, it's a big rock. A, a rock, it's really heavy. Uh, for the size it has, and it's very much not human. So this is part of an uh, asteroid that uh, landed in uh, in Mexico, um, and uh, we we have a small collection of uh, of asteroid uh, or parts of asteroids, which were collected by humans of the Rug. We had a large geology department, and our museum has about forty thousand stones from all over the universe, I might say. So this is from outer space, right? And it crashed uh, somewhere in Mexico. These people who collected these things, they, they, they were so precise and careful. So Ari, uh, you might be able to see it because you're close by. C can you say what it says here? Yes, it's number G1500. Yeah, G1500. So. We've got about 40,000 rocks and they all have a number which were all written on it by people to make sure we know which rock is which. They used it in education. They even built a building around it, which we call the castle, het kasteel, at the end of the Kranenweg. You might know it. It's no longer a property of the university. But uh, I think this very much not human rock uh, rock. Uh, tells a story story about the persons who actually work here. So when was that and how much do you actually know about how it was used and who used it? Well, well this is still used. So uh, people from the astronomy department always ask us to loan this to them so they can use it in their education and talk to students about uh, asteroids. Um, and it's been done like that for uh, for ages. So I think this was acquired in the first half of the 20th century, and it was on display in the old museum, so in the in the castile. Uh, then it was uh, shortly on dis display in our museum, and now it's uh, uh, most of the time it's kept in the storage facility uh, of the university uh, because we don't have room to display everything we've got. That is really interesting that both, I think, with this um, asteroid, but also with with the big... Um, scepter? The scepter um, that the Beatles used. I mean, it shows that the university museum is not that place where sort of a bunch of older stuff gets parked, but rather it's it's very much integrated in, in the daily and yearly life of the university that lots of the objects 
seem to go back and forth and are, you know, belong with the museum, but the museum keeps giving them back for, for use. Those are the best objects, I think, right? So, yeah. Uh, yeah uh, um, obviously, I've been picking a few of the best examples. Mm -hmm. So, um, if I can make an estimate of how many objects the museum takes care of, it's close to 100,000. So, we're one of the biggest museums in the north of the Netherlands, if you look at our collections. Um, if I make an estimate of the maximum number of objects we can have on display, it's about a thousand, which means that 99% of all we've got is always uh, locked away. And over a period of 15 to 20 years, which is about a period when a museum changes, we can have about 5% of everything we've had uh, on display. So 95% of all the stuff we've got is never seen by, by anybody almost. We're digitizing it. So people have access to it and can study. That brings us very nicely to the next topic that we wanted to talk about. I mean, we've been talking about how you both in your daily life de deal with traditions and with, with the past objects. But of course, we do this also thinking about future generations. Um, so when, when we think about that in your, daily, in your daily jobs, how are the current circumstances or how, how do you think about the future, basically? I think for Harry, maybe now that... Um, Lots of the PhD defenses, for example, during the Corona times had to be a bit online or a bit hybrid. How is it? Um, how, how are the activities and the traditions um, changing with a view towards the future? Yeah, the world is, is changing. And, but however, uh, sometimes I, uh, some things like promotions, I think, are much more valuable when they are done face to face yeah. instead of looking on a screen. And I think that's important that we keep it this way, face to face, uh, also in the future. Yeah. Do you see any any advantages sometimes to to perhaps um, doing it on on the screen, or or is this this sort of importance of of this sort of being all in the same room at the same time and doing it face to face? Yeah. I think looking on a screen and do your defense, it it has not not. It's it's not Doesn't almost real. Oh. Yeah, it's yeah. not meaning. It's just like another Zoom call, yeah. <laughs> not something meaningful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and also I think something you said earlier. It's so important. It's a typical Dutch thing to recognize the work you did with this public defense. It's also a way to to have a check on the work that's been done because it's public. Uh, you cannot or not get away easily with a a sloppy thesis, right? Mm. So. Uh, the work to to dress it up and have a beetle in 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 a robe uh, wearing a a hat and a scepter and have the rector or the presiding rector wearing a chain and a robe uh, makes it uh, well there's some pressure on it which is good i think and uh, and to speak about Harry specifically i think you're one of the beetles who's very important currently to pass along certain traditions, right? Because in the past few years, we've seen quite a number of new beetles being introduced to the beetle core, so to say. And you're one of the persons 
who talks about those traditions and not just to the Beatles, also to me. I learned quite a lot from how you do things. And if I use the wrong words, for example, <laughs> you might correct me. We also do it jokingly. So it's not all serious and it's not uh, like in a church that where we... Uh, whoa, but uh, it's jokingly, it's it's kind of loose, but still uh, it adds uh, an extra layer. Yeah, so it's a little bit of uh, an act between the beetle and the rector. Yeah. Yeah? yeah. That's it. So what you've described describes uh, or suggests a very coherent picture of the Ruch, like one identity of the university. Are there also traditions or maybe material objects that point to tensions or conflicts um, that are like crackles in this unified picture of the history and traditions of the Ruch? Yeah, I think that there are many, right? If there's one thing where uh, things come together, it's at the traditions. All of a sudden we recognize that well, that we work on a similar project, which is to understand nature to a certain extent, to understand how humans interact, something like that. But um, behind that, it's such a layered, such a complicated organization where uh, loads of spoke outspoken conflicts take place, but also uh, conflicts that are much harder to detect, I think. Um, perhaps the second example, the second object I brought along is a story that actually connects to that. Uh, this is a PhD thesis from uh, 1898. Um, it was written by uh, Henriette Macot and uh, Moquette, Moquette, uh, and she was only the second woman to uh, to take a PhD from the University of Groningen. She did in arts, uh, so in in, uh, in Dutch language, uh, uh, she, she took her uh, PhD thesis. Um, after Aletta Jacobs, who defended her thesis in uh, 1879, it almost took 20 years for the second woman to do so. And um, we're now 150 years after Aletta Jacobs enrolled. And how much we would like it, uh, we still don't have equality at university this is like i think this is one of the biggest problems we're wrestling with that only even though we're increasing rapidly the number of professors female professors at our university it's still only 22 percent of uh, of the entire core and then i hear people say well that's because women only entered uh, academia later so the number couldn't have been high, but from the late 90s, so for more than 20 years, uh, we have a surplus of woman, women graduating from university. So it's complete nonsense. And there are all these uh, systems in place that actually um, point to, I think, uh, the biggest uh, problem we're facing, which is, uh, well, it's not just women, it's, uh, it's inclusiveness. And without wanting to sound to woke or to some if if we're not inclusive then um then the system fails us i think so then we don't get out of academia what we want to get out of uh, we don't even know what we're missing because yeah. these people have left so um i i, I think um again these tradi traditions uh they can be both a tool to keep the divide right uh, we can say well we've always had beetles that were men uh, although we, we I, I think we once had a woman a beetle one woman yeah were in, was in the past yeah yeah but but uh, they, they can also be a tool 
to actually unify us. So because we have the tradition, it's safer to experiment within the boundaries of the... And if you handle them like our Beatles do, with, with some joy and some humor, then all of a sudden they can be a tool to include people. So there has there has only been one woman Beatle um, in sort of the history of, of Beatles in the Rock. Yeah, one woman. One woman. Maybe you can recruit some more in the future. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, 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 oh, why not? Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. that will be great, right? Yeah. Now, going back a bit to the theme of, of, of the future, um, you said that you're digitalizing um, some some of the material that, that you have. All of it. All of the material. So, I mean, it's easier for all of us to imagine how one would digitalize perhaps sort of printed material or, or even written material. But how do you think about digitalization and sort of 3D, 3D objects and, and not being able to experience them directly? So, so uh, there are two things that are very important when you digitize uh, historical collections. The first is to have a good written description of what it is. So to find all the information. Here we have a beetle scepter from 1615 and it was made by Leutgen and it's been in use continuously. So, so these things you want to know. And then you want to have a set of good pictures. And from this... Well, it is uh, an asteroid, so, so it's quite uh, special. But then again, it, it's one of the most common asteroids in the world. That's why I brought it along, obviously. Uh, I'm not going to bring the expensive ones. Uh, no, but um, so, so it is an asteroid. So a nice picture and perhaps a description of what it's made of, the material, uh, is something which is already uh, sufficient for you to access it from your home, have a good system for you, and then you... I keep saying asteroid. I don't know why. It's a meteorite, obviously. So uh, perhaps we should redo the entire thing. <laughs> and, but oh man, I'm going to get so many. Just leave this in, perhaps. It's a meteorite. Uh, so so this meteorite, um, uh, uh, people might, uh, uh, I was saying something about it, but now I'm completely off it. But the, is the idea also that by digitalizing the objects, they will be made more available to people and everyone all over the world basically can access them who might not get to the cellars of yeah. the University Museum? Or the cellars or be a, a beetle, right? Um, uh, only a, a few people get to walk around with certain objects or so get to handle them. I would love it if people just start... Uh, so I'm very much in favor of giving away those pictures in high resolution for free and challenging everybody to do stuff with it. We're not there yet, but we will be in the future. And I hope for people to be walking around with a t-shirt of uh, Henriette Moquette or Aleta Jacobs or to walk around um, uh, with with a shirt that says Hora Finita or something like that. That would be... it. If it's alive, if people use it, then then it's working, right? Uh, I, I, I find it so important to stress that traditions shouldn't be... Uh, should be a, a thing that opens up, that gives you uh, tools to interact with each other, to, to, to give you some... Uh, like a safe environment where everybody knows the boundaries but where it's not bad to cross over the boundaries. So if I have another story on that, if I may, well, sorry if I talk too much, but... Um, Can always be cut out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I like it. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so so uh, I did my own PhD uh, at Twente University. And Twente is a young university. So there they have the tradition that the Beatles speaks Dutch. Um, so whenever a PhD defense finishes, we have this Latin uh, sentence. Do you know what it means? Hora finita. The tide is geëindigd. The tide is geëindigd. Yeah. 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 So, so the time yeah. is up. And this is actually precisely what the, the Beatle from Twente says. They, they say, het uh, is tijd. But me being a historian of universities, I, I didn't want that. Like, uh, and other, at other universities, they use a similar Latin phrase, hora est. So I asked the Beatle, I'll pay you 20 euros if you say <laughs> hora est. And she was like, no, that's okay. I'll say it because I like it and I like to, to do it. But I had the rector, the actual rector, presiding over my uh, defense, and he told her off afterwards. He said, "That's not our tradition, right?" <laughs> and and um, everybody's yeah. always shocked when I say that. But it was all done in good, uh, good spirit. So that w- we were joking about, it. and he was like, "Oh, you changed the tradition, and you can't do that." But uh, um, I think that's how we should uh, keep up these university traditions. Try to stick to them but uh have something to talk about but also well be open be open about uh changing them from time to time so is there a particular human from the history of the work maybe not one of the big famous ones that we have already heard about but someone from everyday life who you find interesting and and why and what would that person think about the work and its future. What do you think? Harry, do you want to go first? I think you have an idea. <laughs> I see I, it on your face. <laughs> I, I always have an idea. Um, uh, there, uh, I, I, uh, you asked us to think about this before we came here, so I've been t- thinking about it, and I find it very, very hard to uh, find one person um, but if there's one group of people which is so important, I think it's the people uh, without names. So, uh, so it's not one person, but there are many persons who contributed to, uh, to the academic community without being uh, a formal member, perhaps, of that academic community. So, and, and uh, I glance at Harry. It's the people who make the robes we uh, we have our professors walk in. It's the people who actually um, in the late 19th century we had a person who who made a photograph of every member of the academic community, which is so important. Van Kolkov, but we hardly know who he was. But we have a better picture of everybody who studied and worked here because he made these pictures. It's the Luitgen, the, the person who made the first uh, scepter. Uh, he wasn't a member of the academic community. It's the printers. It's the, And on a day-to-day basis, we work with these people often. We recognize them, I hope, so we're kind to them. But it's very hard to, uh, after a longer period, to know who they were. So I find these people uh, to be the glue that actually brings the university together. And it's not just on traditions, right? It's also on your everyday, uh, uh, well, well, what you ever do. Talking about Feringa again, he couldn't do his work without his lab technicians. And I think he did really important uh, work. This is not just any university as well, right? 
vitamin C was invented in Groningen, right? So, so uh, it's something we we all am familiar with. We all are familiar with. This is the university where, for the first time, the principle of academic freedom was formulated. Uh, uh, it doesn't get much bigger than that, right? The first w- woman to go to university in the Netherlands. It was at our university. All of this was made possible by people we don't know anymore. So, yeah, yeah it's such a paradox that scientific inquiry is actually a, an immensely collaborative endeavor that takes so many people, so many hands, and uh, we only remember these few famous ones. That's yeah. a strange picture of, hi- of history that we have. I think so, but uh, at the same time, uh, there are uh, ways to remember those other people and also to give them names and to study them and uh, to, uh, uh, well, perhaps it's again a, a story of inclusiveness, so to include them in our narratives and to make sure that we tell their stories. That must be quite um, interesting from from the museum perspective. How how do you go about remembering them through through all of their objects yeah. and through through their work and uncovering them? Here I have this hard heartfelt story about <laughs> remembering the people behind the scientists. And our new exhibit is called Masterminds, and it tell, tells the story of of uh, nine great persons from the history of the university. Um, but we but i hope we do it in a, a surprising way where we find out something uh about these uh, uh people these these academics in a way that it's uh, that is different one of the things the university museum explicitly does though um because we need to tell these big stories but we always also tell the smaller stories social media is perfect for that right we spend a lot of time, uh, we invest in, for, ex- uh, for instance, Twitter, where we make jokes and where we try to talk about these smaller uh, stories behind uh, the, the big stories. The big stories we also need to tell. If it's been 150 years ago that Aletta Jacobs enrolled, we start talking about Aletta Jacobs, get everybody's attention, but then that gives me a chance to also talk about Henriette Moquette, who we've all forgotten, right? Because it is a good good PhD thesis, etc., etc. But it's not groundbreaking, and or is it? She was the first woman to uh, defend a PhD, so, so that uh, that's the way to uh, to do it. Just just as a curiosity, though. Now, I mean, he he explained how he tried to change the tradition when he was doing his PhD. Do people attempt this now? And what do you do when someone tries to change? how a PhD ceremony goes. We correct them. <laughs> we correct them. Yeah. So, so, so one of the things, um, uh, uh, when a professor comes to uh, preside or attend a PhD defense and they don't have a rope, so they are a professor and they come to you, they ask, can I borrow a rope? What's your reply? Of course they can. <laughs> Yes, he, he he's not saying But it. But not now. <laughs> no, he has his sentence. Uh, it's a carpenter without tools, right? Oh, yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. If, you're, if you're a professor without a rope, you're like a carpenter without a hammer yeah. and a saw. <laughs> so it's, yeah. That's right. Thank you, Harry, very, very much for agreeing to talk to us today. And thank you, Arjen, for being our guest here. No problem. And thank you for listening to this episode of Humans of Rug by the Young Academy Groningen. 
Be sure to tune into the next and please subscribe for free on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, for example. All the best from Lisa Herzog. Thank you. And Julia Costa Lopez. Thanks. <laughs>